Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. And I have not a peer review, but a formal apology, dear listeners. To whom are we apologizing this time? Just everybody. (laughs) Everyone involved. I lied to you, and for that I am very sorry. I said this was going to be a four-part series, and in fact, this is the last episode in the series. Amy always knew it was going to be three parts. Welcome to the end, the beginning of the end. Here we are. I don't know why Chantel thought this was going to be four parts, when clearly two weeks ago I talked about my comparative essay between The Book of Negroes and Gulliver's Travels, and this time I was going to do all three together. And she was like, oh, and then we have part four. And I'm like, no, we're not going to have part four. There's only three parts. There's only three S's. Well, I introduced four parts like five weeks ago or whatever, so. It's fine. What book are we talking about? This week, we are covering Kindred by Octavia E. Butler, who lived between 1947 and 2006. She was an American science fiction author and a multiple recipient of the Hugo and Nebula Awards. In 1995, Butler became the first science fiction writer to receive a MacArthur Fellowship. I actually forgot this was science fiction. I'm really excited now. (laughs) (laughs) She began writing science fiction as a teenager, attended community college during the Black Power Movement, and while participating in a local writer's workshop, she was encouraged to attend Clarion Workshop, which focused on science fiction. Frickin' rad. So again, this week, uh, we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy topics. There's mentions of rape, there's mention of slavery, everything else that comes along with that. There's mention of suicide. It's a lot, but it's a very good book. It sounds like a really good book. I have this one on my list, so I'm just going to listen to what you say and then I'm going to promptly forget it. It starts with Dana, who's our protagonist. She's in a hospital and she's missing a left arm. The people at the hospital think that her husband, Kevin, our secondary protagonist, is the one to blame. They don't want to tell them the truth of what happened because they don't think anybody's going to believe them. I love that as a trope, actually. Like, we can't say what really happened because it's stranger than fiction. You know, that trope. Is this going to be like a frame narrative for our actual narrative, which is going to be a flashback? Uh, no, it's weirder than that. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, so Dana's black, Kevin's white, and this is 1970-something. On the day of her 26th birthday, Dana becomes super dizzy, and her, like, everything around her kind of, like, fades away. Kind of like, um, in the Martian time slip, you know, everything was going by really fast. Kind of that happens to her. Are we certain that... This is not just a hangover mirage from her 26th birthday pre-party. Because when you're 25, that's when you start getting hangovers. When she comes to her senses, um, she finds herself near a river and there's this small red-headed boy who's drowning. Obviously, she's a good person, so she saves him and tries to resuscitate mm-hmm. him. And then his mother, who had been unable to save him because she couldn't swim or whatever, begins like basically attacking Dana, accusing her of killing her son, blah, 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 who she names Rufus. A man points a gun at Dana and it terrifies her and then she dizzies herself back to home. Okay, so I just... If the mother had tried to save the son and couldn't, then she knows that Dana wasn't the one who tried to kill him. She knows how he started drowning if Dana wasn't there and the mom couldn't help him before. And then Dana suddenly was there helping him. So like she's barely gotten herself cleaned up from having to dip into the river and she gets dizzy again. Dana, that is. This time um, she's whisked into a bedroom where Rufus, who's now a little bit older, has set his curtains on fire. Dana, again, saves him. And Rufus confesses that he set the fire to the drapes to get back at his father for beating him after he stole a dollar. Rufus casually refers to Dana 
Dana as the N-word, which I'm obviously not going to use. And that makes her figure out that she's probably in Maryland around 1850. Time travel is the most logical explanation. Yeah, but like she's she's time traveling to 1815 from 1976, which explains why Rufus's mother tried to beat her. It's very scary. This is a scary book. So Rufus helps Dana along, tells her to seek refuge at the home of Alice Greenwood and her mother, a bunch of free blacks who live on the edge of the plantation. Dana then clues in that both Rufus and Alice are her ancestors and will one day have children. Oh, that's fun. Well, no, it won't be fun. I'm sorry. Oh, no. It's not a fun book. I'm sorry. <sighs> Okay. She uh, she has an attempted rape that happens. And then, you know, again, she's fearing for her life. So she gets pulled back to 1976. She's been gone for hours, but her husband says that she's only been gone for a few minutes. Eventually, you know, her and Kevin pack a bag for her that has everything that they need, like aspirin, knives, free papers, all that kind of stuff. Because she's a black woman being transported to 1815-ish by a boy who keeps summoning her through almost dying. Oh, that's how she gets there. Oh, that's a very inconvenient link because he is not worth saving, it sounds like. No, he's kind of a piece of shit. As Kevin is leaving the library to find out how to forge free papers for Dana, um, she feels dizziness coming back. This time, Kevin holds on to her and also travels back to the past. They find Rufus like in pain because he fucking broke his leg. Next to him is a black boy named Nigel, whom they send to the main house for help. Rufus reacts with violent disbelief when he finds out that Kevin and Dana are married. Dana and Kevin explain to Rufus that they are from the future and prove it by showing the date stamp on the coins Kevin's carrying in his pockets. Rufus is like, I'll keep your identities a secret. And Dana tells Kevin to pretend to be her, her master, which he's really uncomfortable with for obvious fucking reasons. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Also, probably the only way that Dana could survive. I love that that's their first reaction. They're not like, oh, we'll pretend to be from the past. They're like, we'll just tell the first person that we see that we're actually from the future. Probably no one will think we're crazy. I mean, he keeps growing up and she's not changing. So it's kind of like... Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It checks out. Tom Whalen, who's the plantation owner slash Rufus's dad or uncle. I don't quite remember. It's not really that important. Tom Whalen arrives. Kevin introduces himself and they go back to the house. Dana meets Sarah the cook and Carrie, her mute daughter. Unsure about what they need to do next, Kevin accepts Whalen's offer to become Rufus's tutor. Kevin and Dana stay on the plantation for several weeks. They observe the relentless cruelty and torture that Whalen, Margaret, and the spoiled Rufus use against the slave. Margaret is Rufus's mom. Whalen catches Dana reading and whips her mercilessly. Obviously, Dana being in danger, she becomes super dizzy again, travels back to the future before Kevin can reach her. So she travels back to 1976 alone. Again, this whole idea of like being a literate black person in that time is a danger zone. Yeah. So after eight days of being at home without Kevin, Dana gets pulled back to Rufus getting beaten up by Alice Greenwood's husband, Isaac Jackson. Dana learns that Rufus has attempted rape on Alice, uh, who was one his childhood friend so this is not great dana has to convince isaac not to kill rufus and alice and isaac run away um she learns that it's been five years since her last visit and that kevin has left maryland dana nurses rufus back to health again in return for his help delivering the letters to Kevin, which he obviously won't do. Five days later, Alice and Isaac are caught. Isaac is mutilated and sold to traitors heading to Mississippi. Alice is beaten and enslaved uh, for helping Isaac escape. Rufus, who claims to love Alice in a creepy way, buys her and orders Dana to nurse her back to hell. Dana's like the greatest person. She does it with so much care. And when Alice finally recovers, she curses Dana for not letting her die. And I'm guessing Rufus is not going to free her, of course. Oh, it's just gonna get worse before it gets better. So Rufus 
orders Dana to convince Alice to sleep with him now that she's recovered. The hell? So Dana speaks with Alice, outlining her three choices. She can refuse and be whipped and raped. She can acquiesce and be raped without being beaten. Or she can try again to run away. Obviously, Alice is injured and terrified, and she gives in to Rufus's desires to become his concubine. It's not great. Dana runs away to find Kevin, but is betrayed by a jealous slave. Rufus and Waylon capture her. Uh, when Waylon learns that Rufus failed to keep his promise to Dana to send the letters, he writes to Kevin and tells him that Dana's is on the plantation. Something, something, property is more important than people's lives. Mm. Capitalism is the root of evil. Capitalism is the root of slavery and therefore it is evil. Kevin retrieves Dana, but Rufus stops them on the road and threatens to shoot them. Uh, he tells Dana that she can't leave him again and obviously because she's being threatened, Dana becomes dizzy again and travels back to the future with Kevin. So Kevin has a hard time adjusting to the present because he's lived in the past for five years. He grows angry and cold. So again, you know, Dana obviously travels back. It's one of those, like, we go back and forth, flip and flop, and it's a lot of fun. It's like, fish um so dana finds herself back at the plantation house she learns that rufus and alice have three mixed race children um but that only one a boy named joe has survived alice is pregnant again alice gives birth to a girl hagar who's the direct ancestor of dana so she's like okay cool alice confides that she plans to run away with the children obviously because she fears that she's forgetting to hate rufus uh, you know stockholm syndrome yeah rufus hits dana in the face because she's trying to get rufus to let her teach his kids and he's mad about it well he's probably treating his own kids as his slaves also and wouldn't want them to like be able to forge free papers you know faced with her own powerlessness over rufus uh dana retrieves a knife she has brought from home and slits her wrist in an effort to time travel oh my god i mean if nobody's gonna threaten you you might as well threaten yourself so she gets up back home with kevin by her side he's fixing her up because he's an amazing husband and we love him so she tells him of her eight months in the plantation hagar's birth the need to keep rufus alive blah 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 when kevin asks if rufus has raped dana she responds that he has not and that an attempted rape would be the act that would cause her to kill him no that would be super creepy since he's her ancestor oh man stay tuned so on the 4th of july dana returns to the plantation where she finds alice has hanged herself <gasps> Rufus nearly commits suicide, which is what brings Dana back. Dana uses that guilt to convince Rufus to free his children by Alice. And from that moment on, Rufus keeps Dana at his side almost constantly, having her share his meal and teach his children. One day, he finally admits that he wants Dana to replace Alice in his life. You can't see this, but I'm making a face of just abject horror constantly this whole summary dana obviously horrified at the thought of like one forgiving rufus and two doing this flees to the attic to find her knife rufus follows her and obviously attempts to force himself on her so she stabs him twice with her knife except he grabs to her arm her left arm <gasps> no her arm her missing arm and she time travels home for the last time only to find herself in excruciating pain as her arm has been joined to a wall in the spot where rufus was holding it no why is it in a wall i think it's like it glitched in the matrix kind of thing it's like oh it was holding on to something before it needs to be holding on to whatever the nearest thing is when we pop back and the nearest thing is a wall so basically dana and kevin travel to baltimore to investigate the fate of the whalen plantation after rufus's death but they have found almost nothing so there's a report of his death the house catching fires the slave sale announcement listing all the whalen slaves except for nigel the um a guy who worked in the house carrie the mute daughter i believe and 
Joe and Hagar. So Dana speculates that Nigel covered up the murder by starting the fire and she feels responsible for the sale of the slaves. To that, Kevin responds that she cannot do anything about the past and now that Rufus is finally dead, they can return to their peaceful life together. Well, that was a trip. It's a very good read. It's a very well done piece of sci-fi. It sounds like a good read. It just is very horrific. It's not extremely graphic though, from what I remember. It's very much like this is happening kind of thing unless like I will describe every lash to you. It's more about the emotions being felt than like the actual actions. But it's a sci-fi book and it's a very good one and I would recommend it to people who can handle these types of things. It's still on my list. I recommend. So obviously this whole thing is part of a three-parter where we compare Gulliver's Travels, The Book of Negro, and Kindred. We're also going to compare it uh, a little bit to Dion Brand's The Door of No Return. Rad. This essay that I wrote, which was 27 pages, so I cut it down significantly to five, is titled The Door of No Return, a Diasporic Rite of Passage. And it starts with, get this, an epigraph. Groundbreaking. From Dion Brand, which is, writing is, after all, an open conversation. Works find each other. They live in the same world. The narrative of race is embedded in all narratives. We're talking about travel narratives in this scenario and how they're a byproduct of colonialism and exploration, which we've talked about. They also account for a significant portion of what is called African literature. So yeah, I uh, wrote this in the context of my African literature class. Um, so it has some mentions of other books that we read in that class. So if I lose you, apologies. These narratives, travel narratives, African literature, are rooted in a sinister colonial agenda with their origin in anthropological examinations of people and places. Jonathan Swift did this very well in Gulliver's Travels. Um, he satirized the colonial agenda, travel narratives, and, you know, English society. The Book of Negroes was a similar disruptive force in post-colonial revival of slave narratives, which is why, like, it kind of becomes more of a travel narrative, because it's kind of like, you know, despite her forced migration, she manages to overcome so many obstacles that she faces, and she lends her voice to the um, abolitionist movement. Kindred uh, uses the form of time travel narrative to provide insight into the memory of history and ancestry in the diaspora. Yeah, the diaspora is the people who are from another place and now they're in a different place. So like the European diaspora would just be like all the white people, except you wouldn't say that because of colonialism. So in context of every other ethnicity and race in the world, you would say like the Chinese diaspora is all the people who are from China, like Chinese Americans and Chinese Canadians. Apparently it's pronounced diaspora, not diaspora. So both Gulliver of Gulliver's Travels and Manata of the Book of Negroes are storytellers who use their storytelling to dispel traditional conventions of travel narratives from within the genre. Whereas Dana of Kindred rewrites the genre through the unique take of the time travel narrative. So through my intertextual analysis, coupled with Dion Brand's autobiographical study of the diaspora, a map to the door of no return, this essay will demonstrate that the door of no return is not a fixed tangible point in a time or even a transitionary period in the life of a diasporic person. Instead, it is an inherent part of the diasporic experience and identity created by the traumatic effects of colonialism. So it's like the you're using the door of no return as like a concept where when you leave a place you could no longer fully belong in that place again. Kind of like it makes you an other in your own space. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> There's this little podcast on the internet. It's not super reliable, but it's called Uncited, um, an English <laughs> literature podcast. And I think they covered it a couple weeks back. I think maybe in their Gulliver episode. So if you haven't listened to that one, maybe go back and listen to it. So you may be like thinking like, um, colonialization, when does that have to do with Jonathan Swift? Isn't he British? No, fuck, he's Irish. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so the term diaspora would be anachronistic in terms of Swift's experience. But, you know, the Irish experienced colonization, starvation, and forced migration. So all of these novels and, you know, these writers kind of have an interesting dialogue with the notion of the diaspora. The Book of Negroes and Kindred illustrate the diaspora's method of understanding history through reclaiming and repositioning it within the confines of their own modern contexts. Yeah, so a map to the door of no return identifies that very modern context of living in the diaspora and being affected by the simultaneous past colonialism and its lasting effects. So according to Dion Brand, the door of no return is a place where our ancestors departed one world for another, a place where all names were forgotten, all beginnings recast. In some desolate sense, it was the creation place of blacks in the new world diaspora at the same time that it signified the end of traceable beginnings. So it's a beginning and an end. And when you're saying blacks, of course, that's a quote. Yes, sorry, I don't know if that wasn't clear. That was a quote. Maybe I should have done air quotes. Air quotes in our audio format work really, really well. Yeah, no, um, if I say something that's like not for me to say, it's a quote. This is my word now. By this definition, the door of no return would be the slaving trade post along the shores of Africa, which is a locale where ancestral departures permanently altered the identities of the departed. So here it's a physical space. In another interpretation of a map of to the door of no return, the door of no return is a metaphorical colonial space that employs force to fundamentally change a person into someone belonging to the diaspora. The place where this interpretation diverges from Brand's definition is its scope. It's not exclusive to the African diaspora, in my opinion. The Door of No Return represents a diaspora's movement from their ancestral roots into the third space of cultural hybridity. If you don't know what third space is, Amy just gave the definition. It's cultural hybridity. So you know how Aminata couldn't go back to Africa and feel at home because she was ripped away from it? So yeah. it's that, like that feeling that she's so well encapsulated. That's basically the diasporic experience, according to Brand. I think now there's more like positivity with it. Like oh, yeah. you, you have yeah. an intermingling of cultures in a way that can be really positive. Like you have Jamaican culture with Canadian culture and get something like really unique and beautiful and um, connect with people through that. So like it's not necessarily a negative thing, but with slavery, it's a super negative thing. Yeah, like like this far removed from it, from the door of no return, that is, it's less negative to not be able to go back because there's so much to be gained in this new culture and this new like sense of self. Whereas back then it was just like, I was ripped from my home and now I can't go back. And it's not voluntary at that point whereas now it usually is i'm not gonna say it always is because there's still like war and refugees and famine and there's a catalyst to escape to something better or something that like is more prosperous for your family and your livelihood than staying where you are whereas there isn't that in the olden days like people from africa when they were you know being enslaved and i say africa is like a general term they were enslaved from everywhere yeah everywhere in like west africa yeah i'm like generalizing here because we don't know where people are from because of slavery i get it because of slavery but when they were they went through the the middle passage they weren't doing that to come to America and live the American dream. No, the American dream was built on their backs. Yeah, 100%. Brand says, I cannot go back to where I came from. It no longer exists. However, now we're going to talk more about Kindred now that you have all this fun background about the diaspora or the diaspora, depending on how I feel. <laughs> 
so in Butler's Kindred, language skills continue to be a life-saving tool in the context of temporal diaspora. Oh, temporal diaspora. That's a very good term, Amy. Did you coin that? I believe I did. Very excellent. What an English major moment. I'm so happy to be a part of this. So Dana is sent to the past to save Rufus, obviously, mm. in order to ensure that her own ancestor is born. Her 20th century knowledge of reading and writing plays a huge role in keeping her alive during her time in the past, like Aminata. Her ability to read to Rufus is what keeps her out of the plantation fields and in the house where she can avoid more dangerous situations and where she can be close to her husband. So she keeps Rufus entertained with novels such as Robinson Crusoe, Pilgrim's Progress, which is a barf book. We're not going to talk about it. And of course, Gulliver's Travels. Another one where they talk about Gulliver's Travels in the book and it's also like Gulliver's Travels. So she helps a lot of people by teaching them how to read and write. But that use of language that she has um, is also really dangerous and anchors Wayland. Her education makes her dangerous because she could become a lost investment if she did run away. Oh, that's a gross wording. I know it's like the attitudes, but it's also super gross. Capitalism is trash. However, this danger is also a blessing in disguise as the frights send her back to the 20th century. Her modern language also poses a danger to her when she's reprimanded by Nigel for speaking more like white folk than some white folk. So, you know, she learns to adapt her language. In doing so, she returns to the language of the diaspora. The diaspora at the time there, like the slaves. Mm -hmm. So she inhabits both the diaspora of African Americans in the 1970s, like shortly after the civil rights movement, which let's be real is still happening, and also uh, the diaspora of the people who were stolen from Africa. She's not only temporally diasporic in the 19th century as someone who is transplanted into a past culture in which she is another, but culturally diasporic in the 20th century as an African-American woman. So like, because she's inhabiting both these spaces, but also none of these spaces, she's living through these like various shifts of the diaspora. You can imagine what being a black person in... 1976 who's actually gone through living the horrors of slavery yourself might do to you encountering like people in the 20th century who are like there isn't i don't see color oh my god yes and like the people who are like slavery is over it's been so long ago blah 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 mm, was it though it actually was not dana's experiences in the past make her return to 1976 a foreign experience Kind of like when you go to a foreign country and then you come back and you're like, hmm, these people are not horses. <laughs> yeah, and especially 1976 when like even more so than today, there would be like segregation and prejudicial attitudes and stuff. And that's probably why she talks so much like white folk because most people who are not white would know this already. But there's something called code switching where a lot of black people who speak the African-American form of English AAVE, make themselves sound more like the quote unquote white form of English. There's like a million different dialects of English in America alone, but for safety reasons, because, so that they don't get judged. I mean, it's it's not just African American people who do it, it's anybody who speaks a second language. Yeah, anyone who speaks a second language, anyone who speaks a less accepted form of the language, like whenever I speak to anyone who has a better French than I do, and I swing mon français. Even the fact that you're saying a better French is indicative of the attitudes around
around different varieties of a language. And when Dana's living in historic Maryland, she says that she could recall feeling relief at seeing the house, a feeling that she had to come home and having to stop and correct herself, remind herself that she was in an alien, dangerous place. Like coming back to Maryland should not have been a feeling of home because for her, this place was so much like of a danger zone. Like it represents so much trauma, but at the same time, like she had spent so much time here that like it felt like something that belonged to her as well, like an experience that belonged to her as yeah. well. Living in Maryland becomes more home to her than present day California. And she felt as though she was losing her place in her own time. Rufus's time was a sharper and stronger reality. Now, part of this um, is because of the hardships that she lives through, the trauma and the workload um, that made the past more tangible. So in present time, she's a writer. Mm -hmm. So she's living a very like as cushy as you can have as a black woman in the 1970s. Yeah, plus being a writer is kind of a vicarious existence anyway, because you're living your life, but then you're also like, in your head, you're living the lives of all the characters that you're writing. She was something, someone in the past, whereas in the present, her purpose and her experiences are lost in routine. Her only comforts in the present life are her husband, Kevin, telling her, you're still you. Oh. Her experiences bring her closer to the door of no return, but her identity within it remains fundamentally the same. She is remains of a diasporic woman who feels conflicted between her interracial marriage and her independence in the black community. Another thing people will get judged for. Kindred has many overlapping elements with the Book of Negroes, including its intimate first-person narration and the discussion of the history of the diaspora. Butler's structural format of the novel allows readers to have an intimate experience and gain what feels like first-hand knowledge of an often silenced American history history experience. Slavery. These are not my words. So the presence of the diaspora is twofold in Kindred. Dana's African-American heritage is born out of a history of forced migration, and the method of time travel is one of forced migration as well, where Dana is forced to go to Rufus in his time of need. You know, that forced migration, you know, when you go on a trip, you're like, I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna eat here, it's gonna be fun, I'm gonna do things. Yeah. But this forced migration doesn't give you any of that. You don't have that, like, I'm gonna unpack my things, yeah. I can't wait to try out this new shower in this place, I wonder whether water pressure is yeah there's no hope there's no wonder there's no joy there's just like dread there's just what the fuck is this yeah she has a similar experience to amnada as she is forced into the experience of traveling a great distance to a perilous destination like she's traveling from the west coast to the east coast she's not in control of her travels it is a result of the action of her white slave owning ancestor much like amnada's journey and fate are in the hands of slave traders dana arrives in the antebellum south like every other black person by force you know what i think kindred is even more deep than I gave it credit for. Because in addition to that, that she is being brought to the antebellum south by force by a white slave quote owner, it also gives a really unique opportunity to see the past through a lens of the present. Like to see someone from our time witnessing that time, which brings it much closer to us and makes it more digestible. And I think that's one of the reasons I love time travel narratives so much. Yeah, so her body, her identity, does not belong to herself. She's brought to the past by Rufus and as a black woman is owned in the past. Dana has no comforts. The only way she can regain her own agency and reclaim her modern diasporic identity in place is when she cuts her own wrists to get home. Aww. The progression of her agency throughout the novel presents itself as an allegory for the agency of the diasporic people. Dana's forced um, interaction to ensure the continued safety of her ancestors is a very physical representation of how ancestors remain fixed in history. They cleave not only to the collective and acquired memory of their descendants,
descendants, but also to the collective and acquired memories of the other. Dana's direct involvement in this ancestral memory is extremely dangerous. Her husband, Kevin, informs her that by trusting Rufus, she is gambling. Hell, she's gambling against history. Because, you know, she's a black woman trusting a white man in the antebellum South. But Dana knows that, you know, she can't exist without Hagar. So in something torn and new by, by Thiongo, they say that the construction of the diasporic identity comes from a destruction of the self. A dismemberment. Such fragmentation is a result of the guilt and anger which are the central character of colonial practice in general. This contact is characterized by dismemberment. The dismemberment is both physical and psychological. For Aminata, the psychological dismemberment occurs as she's ripped away from her continent and forced into slavery. She's branded with a mark, like a physical like actually branded with the mark of like a brand yeah. yeah when she's 11 years old she embodies both physically and mentally the mark of being dismembered from the land from labor from power and from memory the result of which is the destruction of the base from which people launch themselves into the world hmm. she returns to the door of no return and forces guilt on the slave owners she confronts them with a powerful speech you have no idea what i have lived through Every waking moment is a nightmare for the captives you hold right now on the other side of these walls. You have no idea what they endure, if they will even survive the sh in the ships. No idea of the thousands of humiliations and horrors waiting at their destinations. Her triumph in rebuking the slave traders is not a success in her accessing the door of no return, as this still does not bring her closer to the people, the family, nor the community from which she was stolen as a child. They represent a barrier to her past and her potential future. This door, quote unquote, still traps her in the diaspora and creates it's uh, more anger and heartache for the unattainable. Yeah. The same type of dismemberment exists in Kindred. Actual dismemberment. Uh-huh. Oh, I see where you're going with this. This is very good, Amy. Kindred begins with a prologue depicting the end of the novel where she has lost an arm on her last trip home, her left arm. The novel explores the role of dismemberment early on, leaving it in the mind of the reader as the novel leads up to how Dana arrived here. Dana's physical dismemberment will become a constant reminder of her past, of her time as a slave, and as a symbol for what her past as a slave took from her. The sense of disbelief of her physical dismemberment mirrors the disbelief about the atrocities of the past, including that the slave trade went on for as long as it did. Her dismemberment also represents a reclaiming of her agency and identity, as well as a culmination of the racial tension throughout the novel. Dana loses her arm only when she cannot let herself be used and kept by Rufus. She reclaims her agency by stabbing him, but not without losing a part of herself and leaving a part of her arm that Rufus was holding in the past. Her physical dismemberment demonstrates the lifelong effects of colonialism and the slave trade and the mark that ancestors leave upon us. After being historically dismembered from Africa, Dana's physical dismemberment finally marks a break from the past, a way to form her identity in the present diaspora. She will not return to this immersive trauma anymore. It's very good. Kindred, the Book of Negroes, and to an extent, Gulliver's Travels all creates a diasporic disruptive force in the travel narrative genre. Swift satire unnerves the English superiority complex. Hill's novels provides the other, Aminata, with the agency to tell her own story, and Butler's Kindred reclaims a personal history long forgotten. By adapting to Swift's mold of travel narratives, the Book of Negro and Kindred demonstrate that unlike the antebellum slave narrative, 18th century narrative were more generically fluid. In relations to Brand's Door of No Return, these novels demonstrate that to return is not always the best way to live. For the true diaspora, to return is not enough. The resilience lies in acknowledging that a return cannot provide a healing in a way that moving forward can. The Door of No Return is a change that makes return impossible and creates an identity rooted in dismemberment and trauma caused by colonialism. It is not a fixed point, but the very fabric from which the diaspora is created. So that idea of like we were talking earlier about, you know, the diaspora is not a bad thing. Like Bran 
closets that it's the space where like things went to hell and then you build on that you like you use that to thrive yeah i don't know if i'm entitled to an opinion because i'm one of those like patchwork people one of those white people measuring their ethnicity and fractions type deals but I see the diaspora less as a dismembering now and more as like a layering, like you're adding layers on. So that's why it's a third space. It's like if you layer blue on top of red, you're going to get purple, which is a third color, you know? So you're layering a culture on top of a different culture. Those cultures are going to mix and meld together in a really unique way and you're going to get something new. Right. Whereas I see it as like, well, now we've taken your ability to like use your left arm so let's you know make this into something different like maybe you can't drive a car with both hands but now you have that cool little knob thing on your steering wheel and this is a new lived experience okay this metaphor is like falling to pieces but y'all get what i'm saying maybe like you have red and you don't have blue but you have to put red in like the kitchen instead of the living room you know do i know the diaspora is taking like your lived experiences that you had in one space Putting them in another space, realizing that doesn't work in this space. Oh, I see. And then having to change who you were and what you came from into something that's new and that you can build on. It's like if you live in a really old Victorian house with crown moldings and fancy bay windows and you have all this like matching furniture that's really antique and then you move into like a modern apartment condo with like really fancy glass like countertops and fancy like full wall windows and you put your antique furniture in there and you're like hmm this doesn't really fit anymore does it doesn't fit the vibe no but you paint all this furniture off gray and suddenly it looks a bit more modern and you reupholster the chair and suddenly you've been able to take this victorian piece of furniture that you put you brought with yourself (laughs) and make it into something new. you built upon what with what you had kind of thing and sure maybe it was mahogany but (laughs) that is mahogany yeah but i'm sending it down anyways (laughs) so yeah i think we have both interesting way of seeing the diaspora and neither of them are right and neither of them are wrong because also we're not very diasporic people so if anybody who is a part of a diaspora you know and you have things to add please do um we'd love to have your opinions because we uh as we've said many a times are super unreliable and you shouldn't listen to us for reliability in anything yeah, I think that's all we have for you today. We have been Unsighted, an English Lit Podcast. I have been Chantel. This has been Amy. We're doing this again. If you liked this episode, please give us a subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. And we would love to get a five-star rating and review from you. We read them all. They make us very happy. We also have been invited to guest on a podcast that I will not name yet because I will let them announce it. But we get to choose the book. We do like them but we are going to bug them a lot so please dm us your suggestions to at unsighted pod on instagram or twitter of really bad in a funny way books and stories that would be cool to cover and we will tell you when that is happening thanks for listening and we hope to see you in two weeks and as always we're excited and available Can you leave that in? No. <laughs> <laughs>